Hello, everyone. This is Martin. I am sending this out on my podcast feed. It's generally not going to be there. I will put a sample in every now and then. But it's UAP Crossfire. It's on my YouTube channel. And you can also hear it at KGRA Radio, Thursday nights at 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And thank you. Oh, this week we have Christian Lambright filling in for Commander Cobra. APs, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial, interdimensional, time travelers in origin, or are they simply a result of top-secret military black projects, false flag alien invasion psyop, drones, or other human-made aircraft? Join UFO historian Don Ecker, MUFON State Director for New York Chris DiPerno, retired veteran pilot Commander Cobra, and well-esteemed host and researcher Martin Willis as they discuss the latest news and topics regarding UAPs with a no-holds-barred approach on UAP Crossfire. This is UAP Crossfire. I'm Martin Willis, and I'm hosting today. And over, let's see, am I doing it? This, yeah, I got to turn this way. That's right. Over here, we got uh, a detective and longtime UFO researcher, Chris DiPerno. Uh, let's Hello, see, everybody. I got to go down. Down here, we have a longtime researcher, Don Ecker. And over this way, we have uh, Christian Lambright. He is filling in for Commander Cobra today. I've known Chris for many years, and he's a longtime UFO researcher. And he's going to be talking on the second half of the show about the Paul Benowitz case, which is a fascinating case, if you ask me. Um, a very convoluted, a lot of uh, disinformation. The poor guy was tortured and all that. Uh, so the first part of the show, we're going to be talking about um, the Sean Kirkpatrick's, his op-ed, and a couple of other comments that he has said over the last um, week or so. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to run a clip here. I had the pleasure of interviewing um, uh, Representative Tim Perchette today for next week's show, and I'm just going to put a teaser clip up, and uh, also I'll give you a sample of some of the technology issues that Tim had, and he's, he's a riot, and here we go. And, um, and they said, hey, man, you've really, and I'll paraphrase, I can't remember exactly, but he said, he went on some lines, you've really kicked the hornet's nest at the Pentagon. And he mm -hmm. said, you, bet you need to get some bodies around you. Wow. And I said, yeah. and I come in Tennessee, I don't, I don't know, you know, we're, we're take things a little different down here, dude. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and I realized I've kicked the hornet's desk and the big boys are coming after me and they're coming after me in this election and they'll do everything they can to discredit me because really all Washington is, is a portfolio over people. It's just about, they don't care as long as these missile defense companies are putting out this high tech stuff in their stock portfolio. It's not natural for somebody to make 30 or 40% year in and year out. And there's everybody. All right. Hold on. Yep. No hurry. Yep. Okay, I don't even remember what I was saying. I was getting irate about something. 
Anyway, that'll be next Tuesday here um, on this YouTube channel and also podcast UFO uh, and KGRA radio, the full interview. But anyway, gentlemen, um, he's a character, isn't he? And isn't it great? There's such bipartisan um, work that is has been done, uh, you know, trying to get to the bottom of this whole thing. I mean, I think it's great. He's feisty. He, yeah. I mean, he's not afraid to take on take people on and 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 call them out. He's done that with the government. He's done that with the <laughs> intelligence agencies. He's he he's one had a press conference that says the reason things aren't going forward is because the intelligence communities are are putting a lot of pressure on on people uh, for this. So, gentlemen, I've said it a thousand times, and I'm going to say it one more. Doesn't seem to connect with anybody, and it doesn't seem they most people are not even probably aware of what the hell I'm saying. But here it is. This whole disclosure thing, in my opinion, is nothing but a pipe dream. A pipe dream. Sure, there's been a little leak here, a little leak there. But the bottom line is, and I said this distinctly in the paper I just wrote, there is a core secret concerning this UFO phenomenon, and this core secret is surrounded by a special access program, an SAP, which means that if you're not in the, uh, if you're not in the book, you're never going to know what's going on. This is never going to be released. Whatever that secret is, I believe the powers that be are terrified that if it becomes public knowledge, they will lose control. And they'll never do that, ever. Well, Don, they got, got people running in so many different directions. They want to say it's secret military. By design, Chris, by design. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But the, look how they changed the narrative. They changed the narrative. You can hear people in the Pentagon talking. It's demonic. It's demonic. They're all demons. And then you got another UL group over here. It's, oh, it's our secret space force, and we got to protect our secret space force. Then it's aliens, and then they're living under the water. I mean, they got Don't forget interdimensional. And oh, that's, that's the new that's, one. Yeah, That's the new one, interdimensional. You know, they have people like Tucker Carlson, Going on the air, and I and there's a short clip of him. He's saying, "This is so bad. This is so dark. I couldn't tell my wife about it. The secrets that I found out from people who were telling me that it's so traumatic that I couldn't sleep at night." And and then people, you know, they go, "Oh my God! You know, maybe this is the end of the world. Maybe the rapture is coming." You know, and, and speaking so about fear pimping. Fear pimping, okay? Today, That's a good word for it. Yeah, today I saw something. I was up on Facebook. I don't know why I still go up there, but I do. And on Facebook, there was this video clip talking about NASA allegedly sighting an incoming asteroid, okay, that according to this so-called report, there's a 72, 73% chance it's going to impact the Earth. 
and it's going to happen in September. Now, this in was Germany. the first time I ever mm. heard this, okay? The first time. Oh, you, you guys are familiar with it? I, I heard it was going to uh, something about Germany. It was possible that it looks like it would be hitting around Germany. Well, that would know. be the end of Europe and, for the most part, mm. the end of humanity, Us. if it were true. Yeah. But I haven't heard it before. And I would think that if something like that were that would had that high of a probability that it would be around the uh, the net by now. And uh, I don't know where that came from. And it's the today we have to we can't trust anything today. We have to no. follow it right to the original source if possible. But really, it's uh, it's really hard to believe anything. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you had any opinions on what on uh, Burchett or any of that other stuff. But uh, uh, Burchett, how can you not like the guy? He's about yeah. as most direct, straight talk as you can get. Um, as far as, I mean, if you wanted to get talking about what I think is going on ever since, actually, I would say since probably 2009, when Harry Reid, or late 2008, because I think the whole thing was co-opted, and well, let me give you my quick synopsis of this. Lou Elizondo supposedly, and I'm pretty sure it came through him, released his IG report. Now, I know I got a copy of it uh, through Alejandro Rojas, but that was a couple of months after Lou even sent it. You can't go to the IG department and get it. But in that IG report, he was stating that Stratton had come to see him two months before the Bass contract even came out, like June of 2008. And after a couple of weeks, then Stratton introduced him to Lou Elizondo as for security reasons. But I'm like, wait a minute, how come Lakotsky and none of these guys have ever said, well, well wait, but by the time the contract came out, the cat was out of the bag. That apparently someone at the DOD knew it was coming and had gone in and interjected Elizondo into it. But then by 2006, if you've read the first 10-month report, and, the, and I've read some of the reviews, you can go online to find the documentation, that they were doing supposedly a glorious job. They'd done all of these reports. They were going to get the next installment of the money. But Harry Reid's already writing, trying to turn it into an SAP. And I'm like, why would you do that if you were doing a good job? If you'd already, if you were filling the bill as far as your DI contract and you were standing to get the next money and it was being run in-house by Bass, Column, Hal, you know, those guys, and they were doing well, why would Harry Reid suddenly want to turn it all over to the DOD as a special access program. But of course that didn't happen, but then the money ends up drying up. I've often wondered, well, might there have been some kind of thumb screws put on these guys? Because if it turned out you had a contract that was made to look like pure science for advanced aerospace weapon systems applications, but it was really just a UFO effort, could someone have gone to them and said, isn't that kind of deceptive if you went and got taxpayer money under a guise that's not really what you were doing. Would that have put the DIA in the hot seat? But needless to say, if you go especially forward to the point of two, the stars, you've got Kit Green going and meeting Tom DeLong at that re restaurant near the Pentagon. And if you've listened to some of the interviews Jim Simivan has done, he's actually come back and said, first, of course, if you checked him out, he had supposedly retired from the CIA 15 years before. But in his own interviews, he comes back and says he took a little time off and then he went back to work for them, doing consultant work or whatever else. But he recently in some of the interviews he's put out has stated that 
he was then told to go meet Tom DeLong in San Diego, or he says he went to San Diego to meet Tom DeLong because there was concerns. He says we were concerned that there were some leaks that might have gotten into his book, into Tom DeLong's book. And so he says in an interview, I'm not sure if it was Theory of Everything, one of those interviews, he said, so I flew out and a couple of other people to San Diego to meet with Tom DeLong. But I quickly realized Tom's a smart guy. But then he says the next day they met for lunch and Hal Putoff shows up. And Jim <laughs> Simovan helped Tom DeLong sketch out the idea for To the Stars on a napkin. My first thought is, wait a minute. Who directed Jim Simovan to go talk to Tom DeLong? Christian, let me ask you a question. Sure. And this, this is a question. And let that... me make a point here. A lot, of, a lot of things I've researched. A lot of things people these days call researchers are reciters. They're just talking about what they were. So everything I'm telling you, I've either got it from a YouTube video or whatever else. It's not that I picked up the phone and talked to some of these people myself. Okay, that, that's my... fair. Go ahead. Go ahead. That, that's very fair. Uh, <clears throat> how in the hell did a rock and roll performer get tied up with these government or supposedly government heavyweights, how put up Kit Green, uh, Skinner from Lockheed, uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Mellon, for God's sake, a former undersecretary of defense, a rock and roll guy. Okay, <laughs> if you go and read, and in fact, if you go to WikiLeaks and you look through all the emails that were written back and forth between uh, um, who was Hillary Clinton's Podesta, Podesta and John Tom Podesta. Long. Yeah. Tom DeLong is writing to John Podesta and talking about how things go along, how he was invited out to Lockheed and all this. There is also a link in one of those links on there to get a copy of Secret Machines. I found it. I was surprised because in the intro, like the foreword to Secret Machines, he explains, in my opinion, from looking at it, how he basically got hooked up with these other guys, Kit Green and Home. My reason I mentioned that is because it seems to me after that occurred, I don't hear any more about his generals, his Air Force generals that he began with. The story, if I can make it brief and feel free for Tom DeLong to come on and correct me, was that he was invited. Lockheed had decided to have an open house kind of thing, but nobody was going to go inside. So it was going to be out in the parking lot. All the families could get together. For whatever reason, they invited, somebody told them, they invited Tom DeLong. He then told them he'd be glad to show up, but he wanted to have five minutes to talk to the top guy at Lockheed. I'll give him credit. The guy's got a lot of, can I say the balls? Were balls. <laughs> the guy's got yeah. a lot of balls to pull that. But he went there and apparently they acquiesced and they eventually gave him five minutes with like the top guy who I don't recall his name right off the top of my head. But that's when he broached something, if I recall, the idea that apparently a lot of government industry and internal intelligence kind of things are getting kind of a bad rap. And how can they make young people today have a better attitude? And maybe that rung some bells. And the, the guys that, that he was talking to at the time, he had met a guy from Space Command and McCaslin, a general Air Force general named McCaslin, who I think is now working for a company out in, Al in Albuquerque. But he talked to McCaslin and apparently there was some interest there. And I don't mean McCaslin was going to sign on, but McCaslin was talking to Tom DeLong. 
somewhere, and this I believe was near the end of 2015. A lot of these emails I think you'll see were coming right through the summer, right after he had met the people at Lockheed. Then all of a sudden, he sends an email and he says, the head of Lockheed at the time had told him there was a person, very important person, who wanted to meet him, but he would have to fly to Washington, D.C. So he did it. He flew out there, found a restaurant. They went to the back at a table of some sort. The guy that was the head of Lockheed was there as well. So for some reason, he on his own flew out there. When I first read it, it doesn't name the person he met, but this is who Tom DeLong refers to as his CIA man. But if you read the description, when I read it, of course, I wasn't, that wasn't proof, but the description of a guy with a beard and glasses and look really firm and sit there, to me at that moment, I thought, this is Kit Green. I believe since then, Tom DeLong has even acknowledged it and others that it was Kit Green. And afterwards, according to the foreword in, the, in his notes, this person said to Tom as they were leaving, things like this don't happen in the halls of power. I may be paraphrasing a little bit, but it's close. They happen when people like us get together and decide to kick the ball down the field. Now, to me, that thought, wait, doesn't that sound like a rogue operation of some sort? I don't know, except obviously these were not people, according to Kit Green, he's supposedly not actively working in the government any longer, so it wasn't a rogue operation. But a letter that Tom DeLong wrote to, I think it was to John Podesta, not long after this, says he's then supposed to fly to Houston to meet some very important people, or excuse me, fly to Texas to meet some very important people. A friend of mine said, oh, that's got to be Hal. And that was the only person that fit. He didn't name who it was at the time. But if that's the case, then you have Kit Green meeting Tom DeLong. How did Kit Green even know of Tom DeLong's interest at that point? Hadn't been going on, but for a few months. And I think the letters I'm talking about by now were as quickly as like October. But apparently, Kit Green is able to call the head of Lockheed and get him. Now, why he didn't just call Tom DeLong himself, I don't know. But the CIA man, and that's what Tom DeLong called him. So if nothing else, you put the CIA right into it at that point. Calls the head of Lockheed, gets Tom DeLong to fly out to Washington. They meet in a private setting. Tom DeLong explains, I guess, what he wants to, wants to do. Well, all that mystique has a certain cachet. Of course, it does. Sounds good in the book, too. To make your secret machines and all of that. But subsequently, I happen to think that it's definitely true. He's writing it to John Podesta. As of that moment, that's when you begin to have Tom DeLong talking more and more with this group of people we hear of. Suddenly, at some point, and I'm still trying to track down the exact date on this, at some point you have Jim Simivan. Apparently, we, and the impression I'm getting, because he's saying he went back to work for the CIA part-time as a consultant, whatever else, and for the next, he said, for the next 12, 13 years, if you look at the timing, he was still working for the CIA at the time he's helping Tom DeLong pencil out how they're going to do To the Stars. And I think a lot of us looked at the original To the Stars setup and looked at their advisors and realized how many of those guys are former CIA people. It was loaded with them. So I don't know what exactly that means, but the CIA, I believe, came in and it strikes me because we don't hear any more of McCasland or Tom's Air Force generals after he goes and meets this person at the Pentagon, this, his CIA. Well, what's that tell you? It tells you that they got their fingers in all of it. Right. Now, yep. if we work on that assumption that they have their fingers in all of it, I was... In the military, I was in military intelligence. So I have 
somewhat of a knowledge how this business works, okay? And the bottom line is, as far as I'm concerned, that whole thing has been compromised from top to bottom. Yes. That's exactly, and I'm not saying I can prove it yet, but that's exactly why I brought up Harry Reid's 2009 letter. Right in 2000, in June, two months, I mean, right at about the time the 10-month report comes out, they're doing well. They're about to get their next installment of $5 million or however much it was. And suddenly, he wants to turn the whole a complete reversal from this unclassified program they were set up to investigate UFOs and whatnot to hand it over to the DOD as a special access program. That would have cut off anything else. And in my opinion, you already brought Lou on there to run security on it. And not too long after this whole thing went belly up at the DIA, which I don't know whether that was something in the compromising. In other words, they managed to cut off the DIA funding. I think there's some funding that I saw in one of the contracts that came out of the NSA's funding office after that. But for some reason, it all went belly up. We don't, do you realize we paid for more than just that first year, the $22 million. But we have not seen any sign that I have seen of another 10-month report. And a lot of that but, money went to the Bigelow space people. May have. I have a feeling that some of that money, well, I don't want to say anything and really talk out of school that might get myself in any hot water, but I think there was a lot of people dipping into that till. And if you if you understand, these are people that were with Bigelow all the way back. And yeah. interestingly enough, we may all know here that according, especially even something Jacques Vallée had pointed out, and I went to check on it, Vallée had been offered to be the director of NIDS years ago, but he was apparently occupied with other things and he turned it down at the time. And it was supposedly given to Kit Green. But I went back to archive.org, you know, the Wayback <clears throat> Machine, looked at the old website. I can't find Kit Green's name on there anywhere. You have Hal's picture. <laughs> you've got other people's faces. Kit Green seems to, and I will, I will say, I've seen plenty of shows where Kit Green was on. He seems like an extremely likable guy, which I guess would be a benefit if you're working for the CIA. But needless to say, I have no doubt about how intelligent he is. But no different than years ago, even during the cattle mutilation period. Not many people realize, you know, Rommel was called in to kind of oversee the investigation and pretty much bury it. But apparently, Kit Green was the one who got Rommel in it. And Jacques Vallée had made this point, and a friend of mine had talked to Jacques and said, who told you that? And he said, Kit Green told me. So, but this is the Kit Green who was also writing the emails that Eric Davis referred to about the alien autopsies that were he had seen at the CIA, and he knew of three of them. Nowadays, I think Keith Basterfield had checked with him on it, and Kit Green seemed to walk all that back. Well, it was, you know, but at the time, he's writing it to Eric, who's spreading it to Bob Bigelow, where the money is, and a lot of these people, and that's actually what I think we have going on at the moment. I say I think because I don't have enough proof. Of that. Well, you've seen how Davis has totally disappeared after the Thomas Wilson fiasco, okay? He's made himself scarce. And I, well, I publicly, yeah, publicly he has. And if you may remember, one of the earliest things he did was an interview with Linda Howe. And at that moment in the interview, you can hear him when they bring up the term ATIP, because I think a lot of people these days consider ATIP and OSAP as the same thing. I don't. I don't. Eric Davis says in that interview, ATIP, oh, Harry Reid just made that up off the top of his head for that letter, that 2009 letter. 
I believe ATIP was just their colloquial name they gave to the group of people that I call the saucer nodal knights that were in the Eric Davis letter, which is Hal, Kit Green. And oddly enough, Kit Green's in on that letter, but Kit Green supposedly wasn't working for Bass. So why is he in on emails that are being sent? You know, how, I mean, uh, at least Jacques Vallée had some involvement building the, working on the database. But needless to say, I think ATIP was just what they considered themselves. And when Harry Reid wanted to make it look like it was some official group, he came up with the name ATIP. And after that, they just tried to refer to them as the same thing. One's a nickname for the other. But OSAT was just the name on the contract, the DI contract. That was all. Well, this, this Christian is in the same city, but it's a different avenue. All right. A little metaphor there. Are you familiar and have you done any research or dug into the so-called Collins elite in the Pentagon? No, I have not done enough. All I know, I didn't, uh, Nick Redfern, was he the one that wrote a book? Yes. That, yes. That, and I think not long ago actually was the first time I <clears throat> ever heard of the Collins elite. Now, a lot of names go about, I mean, back in your and my day, MJ-12 started up, it was the big thing. I don't believe MJ-12 was really ever a name for anything, or they wouldn't have put it in a document they were going to slip over to Benowitz. Why would you put the real name for it anyway? And after that, we got all the variations, Majority 12, Majestic 12, whatever else. The one thing that I consider something I think is curious, I'd like to look into, because when it comes to classified programs, this is a group that not many people are familiar with. The term, the Senior Review Group. Before a pro, you, boy, I'd love to know if I can remember the whole details of it now. If you want to start a classified program, you have to submit it to your central committee or whatever it's called in your department. They can then, if they choose that it's worthwhile, they'll kick it upstairs. It'll go to a committee before it ever gets to the Secretary of Defense's office. But in between the time, even when they're deciding this might be worth doing, apparently it's handed over to a group that's called the Senior Review Group non-delegable members. And in fact, the first reason I started looking into it was in the Wilson Davis memo, because one of the guys that's named in there, I believe it said he was a member of, or affiliated with a senior review group. And this is a group that can actually, has kind of my understanding, yay or nay, okay, over which classified programs get finally set over on the desk of the Secretary of Defense to whether he decides to do it or not. But there's also a term I've heard called the watch committee. What I've heard that the watch Kristen, what about the Avery group? Have you heard about the Avery group? Well, that was back in the Bill Moore MJ-12 period. And my understanding, maybe Don knows more about it since he Some was- Some of those guys are still alive though. Yeah, but a lot of them seem to be the same guys. Right. Like Al, I think is one of them as some of these others. But I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Don, that they were really more or less, that was a name that was applied by Bill Moore to these people he didn't necessarily want to name. So he gave them all these bird acronyms and different ones had different acronyms. So if he's talking to people that he'll, they'll know who he's talking about. So I don't believe that Avery was an official group of people. It was Bill's contact. And, and a lot of those guys were disinformation specialists. Doty. People like Doty. Doty. Collins. Collins. Okay. Uh, I had a had a headbutting incident with uh, with Bob Collins. Uh, he had sent me a copy of his book, and after we had a disagreement, he <laughs> demanded I send it back. 
<laughs> I said, "Well, you can come out and pick it up if you want, Bob, but uh, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get the. I'm not gonna uh, spend the money to send it back to you." Send it well, I mean, too. I would have considered yeah. that. A, yeah, that's kind of a pat on the back. You must have done something right if he got that angry. <laughs> yeah. no, but I'm, I'm telling you, I had butt-ins with Doty a few times. And, well, let's just say there are two people that if they told me the sky was blue, I would not automatically believe it. Doty was yeah, is I, this day. And you yeah, see his I'm, face everywhere these days. I was just going to yeah. say that. And, you know, he was... He was he agreed to be on my show about a year ago. And I said, I would only want you on my show if I can ask you any questions. And that means about Paul Benowitz as well. And he he I've invited him several times. He's oh I can't, I can't, but I see him everywhere. He's on yeah. everyone else's show, but he yeah, won't come on my show because I'm gonna confront him about Paul Yeah, Benowitz, they already acknowledged that they did a disinformation campaign on Paul Benowitz. Uh, believe yeah. me and that'll be coming up in the second hour but you know we're getting let's see we're about hour. halfway through our first hour and uh i do want to uh talk if that's all right we can uh jump right in and talk about this uh article this i guess you'd call it an op-ed it's an opinion piece anyway this uh came out with uh sean kirkpatrick basically when he was leaving uh when he left actually and uh, he came out with this and there's a lot of people talking about this right now. Um, and some of his claims, when I spoke to um, Tim Burchett today, he's basically rolling his eyes like, um, you know, uh, and I outright asked uh, Tim Burchett, do you think that AARO is a disinformation campaign? And he said, absolutely, 100%. He didn't even hesitate on that. Um, so I don't know if anyone uh, wants to take away uh, some of these uh, claims, or talk about some of these claims in this article, but uh, well, the floor is open. Why don't we say, why don't we start with uh, Chris DiPerno? Do you have anything to say about well, this article? Did you all, read it through? Yeah, Kirkpatrick has always said there's, there has been never been any evidence of uh, aliens. He said that in front of uh, Senator, I think it's Kristen Gillibrand, who ha had a committee. He said right out, says, Senator, we have no information that these things are extraterrestrial or aliens. So way back, right from the first start, he he says that. Then he says, oh, geez, we're not getting all the information that we should be getting. And and yet uh, people have come forward and said, yeah, we talked to this group. We've, we've acknowledged all this. So I, I agree with uh, Congressman Burchette. This was a big disinformation thing. Once again, as, as Don and I agree on, they want to send us down all these different roads so we have no idea. Now, one other thing I wanted to say about Kirkpatrick, what's Kirkpatrick do? He comes out and says that cube is now uh, something of an enemy drone, probably from the Chinese. He's He has a, uh, yeah, that that was the picture with the article that was there, is that he spotted a, this drone, this UFO that was spotted at a military base along the East Coast may have been a high-tech enemy drone, says ex-Pentagon UFO investigator dubbed Dr. Evil. Now, how do you get a name like nickname of Dr. Evil, Kid Patrick does, because he's been working on killing lasers and everything uh, most of his time. So That's right. Yeah. And so now he comes out and says, 
This is a Chinese drone. Now, why does it all of a sudden when he leaves, he says this is a Chinese drone, as opposed that he didn't come out publicly while he was in the, the organization as he was head of it and says, hey, we've investigated this. We know it's a, it's a Chinese drone. It's all about disinformation. The, the UFO field has gotten so far with disinformation that they want people going in all kinds of directions from demonic to the Chinese to interdimensional. Yes. And just uh, real quickly, I, I wrote to Ryan Graves today. I was hoping to hear back from him. Um, and he does generally write back, but I said, I want to know your opinion of this. And uh, because what he and his fellow pilots were reporting was a clear sphere, not this chrome thing. And also there was a cube inside of it. You know, that's what they were seeing. And uh, so this is also uh, an alleged researcher, you know, research uh, drone type of thing. We don't even know if a thing flies. We don't really no. know anything about it. You know, it's it's all, all alleged. Um, and let's see. Don, what do you think about the whole thing? <clears throat> I got to tell you, to begin with, number one, and to be perfectly honest, it's been a while since I've read that, a lot of that information. It's not real fresh with me, but I totally agree with Chris, Chris uh, DiPerno. This thing is uh, disinformation surprise, okay? But, hey, that's true with almost everything in this field these days. Uh, you know, I, I half the time don't believe what I turn up when I'm researching something. I mean, bottom line is, you know, uh, how do you verify this stuff? What, what's, the bottom, what's the bottom line on verification? And it's designed that way. It's been that way since, my God, 1947. And uh, it's, it's not going to change. But the business about we have no proof of alien incursions or that any aliens are here. We go back to the uh, David Grosh testimony in Congress on the 26th of July. And the one thing that I noticed and I picked up on immediately Everything that they have been talking about, okay, basically have been recent events. We have had a number of very well-documented, going back to 1967, incidents where <clears throat> unidentified flying objects have not only invaded nuclear weapons sites, nuclear power plants, nuclear uh, uh, missile, you know, uh, sites, uh, ballistic missiles, interfering with them to the point that they had to replace some of these missiles. We know about it. Barry Greenwood, Larry Fawcett detailed it in their superb book, and not a mention of it. Most people today have no, absolutely no data on those events at all. They depend upon 
the passage of time. And let's face it, most people's attention spans are geared to the 24-hour news cycle. In two days, you don't even know what the hell they were talking about. Okay, two days later. Uh, earlier this evening, my wife was watching local news here in L.A., and they're talking about a series of shootings that happened, oh, a year, two years ago. And uh, I had to rack my brain. Hell, I'm a, I'm a re medically retired criminal investigator. And I knew about these things when they happened. But uh, it just passed right out of my mind. So this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to go on and on. But this kind of stuff is not shocking to me. Not anymore. Chris Lambright. Well, I agree with what both gentlemen have said as far as that's concerned. Um, not knowing Kirkpatrick or what his interests were, why he even took the job or whether he was put in the job to begin with. We also know since you've talked about SAPs and, and the term unacknowledged SAPs, and then you go into the waived unacknowledged ones, you have to question what does Kirkpatrick actually have access to? He may think he has access to all the information, but for the people, we talked about this a minute ago, you know, people like Grush and these others who are claiming they went in and actually spoke with these committees. And now Kirkpatrick is coming out and saying they begged these people to come talk to him and they wouldn't come talk to him. And how can that, how can both be true? Unless Kirkpatrick wasn't in the room at the meeting time and nobody ever told him that they had gone in and talked. I mean, I'm obviously conjecturing on that. But the idea is those are somebody's either blatantly lying or we're missing the trick. Sir, and maybe Kirkpatrick Kirk himself is lying. Could very well be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm a f unfortunately uh, I have a I have a feeling there are people that I could name here who know that they are misrepresenting, if you want to be polite about it, their, their stories to the public. But either they've got a pension somewhere or they've agreed ahead of time to hold the fort, so to speak, and not, not go against the, this normal line that, that we've been fed. And it may very well be that Kirkpatrick has got, you know, he's got a get out of jail free card to say whatever he wants. And I will mention this too, because you mentioned it. He's now resigned. And now he can come out and say these things. I did a little quick look at all those people that were at To The Stars when it started. And if you'd looked closely at when those people actually resigned just before they went and joined To The Stars. I mean, Simivan supposedly had resigned. Even the, uh, the Lockheed guy, I think he would have resigned like a few weeks. But I'm wondering sometimes whether usher you, ushering you out is a way to kind of give you space to do and say what you want without anybody being able to claim you're officially lying or saying other things or just now they can watch the, say they've washed their hands of you. I, I learned something about that when I was working on the book, the story of what's called sheep dipping, where you get somebody and they supposedly resign from the military so they can go work for a contractor or do something else. And you don't know that they're really kind of still connected, but you know, Kirkpatrick can say what he wants. Everybody else says what they want. The proof, the proof is what we need. And in my opinion, none of these guys are whistleblowers because if you really wanted to blow the whistle, you're going to blow it so people will come and see what you're blowing the whistle about. You don't clam up and claim I can't talk about it. It's well, Here's the thing, too, about SAPs. 
like Thomas Wilson, okay, after the Eric Davis fiasco. Wilson denied it to the nth degree. None of this is true. None of this is true. But the fact of the matter is, it's a federal felony under statute. If he has awareness of a program that's protected by an SAP, it's a felony for him to even acknowledge he's aware of it. So by design, they have to lie. Even if they didn't want to lie, they have no choice. Yeah, I have heard exactly that thing with someone, a friend, Tom Bland, working on a book and called his co-author who had a few things and asked him about something. And he's basically, I'm not even going to touch that. He won't even talk about it. And you're correct, which does then make you wonder, how come all these other guys that are supposedly now coming out and talking about these programs that they knew about, and they seem to be going untouched? I mean, even Elizondo supposedly getting the three videos released and maybe giving them to Chris Mellon at some point. But other than some talk about AFOSI looking into it, they all seem to have just skated free on that. And I don't, that to me is a big concern why you have some people claiming certain things that they knew and that are classified, but they're acknowledging even Jim Simivan, who will claim, well, there's things he can't talk about, but then he'll go right off and make insinuations and suggestions and references to things. And you begin to think, isn't that doing exactly what you're doing? You know, <laughs> you remember the old movie that, about Robert Redford and uh, what was the Pentagon Papers or something anyway, where he asked the guy on the phone, he said, look, if I'm telling you something just that's true, don't answer, just don't say anything. And he holds on the phone for 10 seconds and then the guy goes, is that clear enough? So he didn't make a comment, but you got the, you got the word pretty quickly. Chris, ahead, Chris. Here's, here's the problem that I have with this article that uh, Kirkpatrick puts out. And, and, and this, is, this just blows my mind. So he says, our efforts were ultimately overwhelmed by sensational but unsupported claims that ignored contradictory evidence yet captured the attention of policymakers, the public driving legislative battles, dominating the public narrative, the results of this whirlwind of tall tales, fabrication, and secondhand or thirdhand retelling of the same was a social media frenzy. So he's basically calling Commander Fravor a liar, well, which Commander <laughs> Fravor is a direct evidence. God knows that I know that's direct testimony. You're an eyewitness there are, there are to a phenomenon like that, about Fravor that I have serious questions about, and I've wanted and tried to get to Chris Mellon to ask him a question about something that I think is a paper trail that suggests to me we have not been told the actual facts of that particular case. I don't want to get off the topic here. We can talk about that a little bit later on. Right, but, but what I, he's but saying I don't there is he's Fravor. saying this is all tales. Yeah. Well, I happen to think, and maybe like Don was in, in getting at earlier, the way I look at it is we, the public, are being treated like chickens in the chicken yard, and they're just throwing worms and seeds out here, and it doesn't matter what your flavor is, they'll th whether you believe in demons or you're religiously oriented or you believe it's all man-made, they'll throw something out there to keep everybody distracted and shuffling around and going off in their own little areas and talking among each other. And it's almost like what they did in the Benowitz case. You bring up Aquarius and MJ-12 and you throw all these other things out there and people scatter, especially in the FOIA. It can take years. I've got some that don't come back. So I don't know how anybody's ever going to dispute what, what uh, Kirkpatrick said 
unless you could get them all together and everybody swears we were in that office we told them directly all this for four hours so for him to come out and claim that we're lying you know fine file a defamation suit let's see some real facts at the road when you come at him for defamation when they're obviously unless he was the only one that was in the briefing there must have been other people in the briefing that were that talked to these different people so somebody else out there is going to be able to substantiate that but that the problem i see is don's absolutely right the attention span of people because there's something new coming along and need we talk about jerry mccorbell and george knapp who seem every few months drop out another little something to get everybody chummed around and running around on that thing and i'm honestly convinced because of what i saw in the interview corbell did with Fravor that Somehow Corbell got into this way back in 2013 or so, long before anybody thought he did. Because Fravor said, well, I know I've known you, what, eight years now? And this was like, I thought, wait a minute. Corbell is looking like this while he's talking. And you realize he is not wanting that to be acknowledged. But needless to say, they're getting their tidbits of information handed to them. And I'm afraid there are enough people out here. I am seriously concerned even about Grush because I've got what I consider almost irrefutable information. Although it's come out now that Eric Davis had been apparently, and we know he's been telling things to uh, Bob Mer to Joe Merja every now and then. But now Eric Davis has come out and acknowledged that he's kind of was one of the guys who apparently had been talking to Grush to begin with. But about Hal Putoff? Well, Hal Putoff may have been in there. I know how that's a whole different scenario. But Eric Davis and Hal Putoff, I have a picture. Eric Davis has said, that he met Grush back in 2019, 2020, somewhere back then. <clears throat> and he mentored Grush and he showed Grush the way to get to the unacknowledged programs, something to that effect. Now, I got to sure. pop in here for a quick second. Let me throw a real curveball, okay? This is a curveball. Okay. <laughs> but speaking about how put off and... Uh, this paper I wrote a number of months ago, okay, part of it dealt with the fact uh, of the remote viewing program that the DIA and the CIA financed for 20 years. Uh, I personally knew and was friends with Ingo Swan, uh, the guy that designed the protocols. And when I was looking into this entire uh, thing with Stanford Research and all the usual names that were involved with that. Christian, I noticed a lot of those guys were involved with the Church of Scientology. Now, we all know today, we know that one of their stars, Pat Price, okay, was stealing classified reports of things that he was involved in, Swan, all these other people, okay, and feeding them to the Church of Scientology. And we found that out when the IRS raided the Church of Scientology. Church of Scientology at that time had a real ongoing feud with the federal government. I don't want to get totally sidetracked with that, but there is some very interesting things in there. But the bottom line was, Putoff was 
deeply involved with Scientology, okay, when he was doing his laser stuff and a lot of other things. Now, that would make, I think, a very interesting research effort. Do you got any, uh, got any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I mean, at all times, be nice if you can. Um, I've read a lot about what you're talking about with Pat Price and how and those kind of things. And I've read a small blurb somewhere that referenced where Hal Putoff had apparently written sounding very positive about Scientology. Well, but he was a part of it. Yeah, there, that's the thing. There have been other times, though, that I've seen things, and I don't have them in front of me to go into them now, that have made me wonder, could some of these individuals, whether it's Hal or any of the other ones, have been kind of infiltrating Scientology to get information and feeding it back through to whomever else? So everybody seems to reference Hal having been a part of Scientology or a member of Scientology, and Hal seems to be kind of quiet on that aspect of it. And I don't know why that is. Is it because he doesn't want to, which is fair game, if he doesn't want to talk about it, fair enough. Or is it because there was some something else actually going on as for why he was so, or had gotten involved with Scientology at the time? I mean, if Pat Price was feeding information, I've read that, I don't know that for a fact, but if Pat Price was feeding information to Scientology, why wouldn't the other side want to get somebody inside of their own to figure out who in Scientology is trying to pick the brains of Pat Price and get him this information? Wasn't Pat I'm Price not, found dead in a motel room? Yeah. Some, yeah Under suspicious having, circumstances? Yeah, it's believed. He was a top remote viewer at one point. There, right? He was. He was one of the very top. But the problem was, uh, at that time, uh, he and Ingo Swan and others were doing a lot of spying on Soviet facilities, okay? And there's a, a contention of, of researchers that believe he may have been uh, assassinated by the KGB. Well, the KGB were doing the same thing with remote viewing, but yeah. there always was a story out there that they were actually able, remember that movie, The Men That Stare at Goats? Oh, sure. All right, but they at some point there was a story that the Soviets were actually be able to perfect that through remote viewing to actually create heart attacks. So that's what their goal was at one point. Well, they, it's believed that he was, if if in fact he was assassinated, it was kind of like that uh, that guy from uh, I think it was Bulgaria that was uh, whacked by the umbrella guy that uh yeah, the fired a, a pellet into his yeah. leg and uh it it may have been something like that because how put off was supposed to meet pat price there and put off this is another little oddity okay a little quirky thing put off found him The body. Is that yeah, okay? Mom. So yeah, there, there. Hey, look. The tangled web we weave when we attempt to deceive. I mean, and, and, and there's the thing. A lot of this stuff, there will never be an end to it. I mean, unless somebody came up and admitted and had all the details of how it occurred. How do you really know? I mean, I don't. I read the strange mysteries surrounding Pat Price's death, and there was some odd oddities to it, but. 
you know, but worse, you know, it's like so many things that are being said about ufology right now about Jim Simavan talking about it's the jinn or it's some spiritual thing, which that just common. Well, let me ask you this, actually, not Mr. Lambright. Mr. Lambright, I, I have a question for you, sir. Why would the Pentagon? come out and tell a high-ranking person like Lou Alexander. Now, I, I'm not saying that this is it. I'm just curious as to why they would go to Lou Alexander and say, drop this case because we know what it is and it's all demonic. And then we have the Collins group within the Pentagon that's formed that believe that this is all demonic. So why are they that particular narrative? I'm curious your idea why they would push. <laughs> You open up a can of worms with me on that one because a lot of my thoughts along this line. That's really, what this show's about is opening up cans of worms. Really is more. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my opinion, if I'm for what it's worth right now, is the real problem with ufology isn't the UFOs. It's people. It's us. Everybody has their own belief, what I call their preferred belief. And in fact, I wish people would listen more carefully to words because there is a there is a word belief then there's the word think and then there's facts what you know many people will just say they know something and it really is something they believe they don't have it's like an opinion you don't necessarily have to have any real evidence for it you're entitled to believe whatever you want and i'm afraid there are going to be people whether it's in the pentagon or anywhere else in the world that for reasons of their own Either they've been, you know, we've all been indoctrinated all our lives into things that have end up end up affecting what we believe. And if you're a strongly religious person and you and fear comes into play because you don't know what the unknown means, I think there will be people who will decide it's demonic. Just like even before the Pentagon, I'm sure we had plenty of people looking at flying saucers and claiming it's the devil. And these days, if you don't want to become religiously, you know, shifty on it. I think it's this no different than saying it's spiritual or it's the gin or it's something else. I'll tell you guys something I've never told. Well, I may have told one or two other people before because I don't want to get into it, but it's one of the reasons that I am extremely hesitant when people claim that they've seen things and they are absolutely certain that it's real. I grew up in Southeast Asia in Java, Indonesia. My parents were missionaries and I'll give you, let me finish the whole story here. One night, I'm sleeping. I had to be 10 years old or less. Of course, I wasn't raised in the mm -hmm. States at the time, so I didn't know. We got three minutes to a break. Yeah, All but right. we'll, we'll have them do this story after I'll the I'll make break. it. I'll make, I'll make it clear. I woke up in my bed and looked out the window. There was a garden out there, but it was walled in. And I swear to this day, I can still see it. Bella Lugosi is the Frankenstein monster. I mean, the quintessential flathead and everything, walking along. And I was panicked. And I ducked down thinking, if he looks at me, he's going to see it. As soon as I looked back up again, I saw the back of his head going the other way. The real point of the story is, like two days before that, my father had received a model of the Frankenstein monster from my uncle, who had sent it to us over, all the way in Java, put it all together, and it was the quintessential Bella the Gosey Frankenstein monster. I'd never thought or seen or really heard anything about it, but I'm fully aware even then, it was more like a waking dream or whatever you want to call it, that I saw something. But if I had said it was a little gray alien. How would I explain it away? How would I be able to contest that? If I had said it was a demon in the room, a dark shadow in my room, 
but fortunately it was the model I had known my dad had gotten and finished putting it all together. And that's where the idea came from. So I know it wasn't real, but the human. Actually, mind, I read something about Frankenstein walking around uh, that oh, area. Sure, at that don't time. tell me. Yeah. I knew it. <laughs> you just wiped me out, Martin. No, but my point <laughs> is I am well aware if only from that personal experience that the human mind can project or can create and depending upon the state of mind that you're in and your willingness to believe what you've seen is you talking about a talk. Well, I don't know what people want to call things these days, but I'm just saying anything somebody sees, we, you know, you need to be sure it's we, when you talk about UFOs, people see a little light go by and it, because they don't know what it is. It immediately qualifies. I wouldn't qualify it that way. To me, the term UFO needs, more breakdowns. You have to be able to identify something, even if it's specifics. But nowadays, the whole thing is just a free-for-all, just like changing from extraterrestrial to interdimensional. It's just another well, word. Well, I have to tell you, uh, Chris, we're just about going right into the break here. But when I saw my UFO go over me at the perfect shape saucer, I don't know how many years it had been when I ever it had even thought about a flying saucer or UFO. So I don't know. I do understand what you're saying, though, and you're making a good point. But right now, we're going to have to go into the break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about Paul Benowitz. And Chris, you can finish your thoughts on that and go right into the Paul Benowitz case when we come back. Thank you. We'll be right back. And we're back. And this uh, this hour, we'd like uh, to talk a lot about, about the Paul Benowitz case. Uh, Kristen Lambright, I met you years ago after I'd heard you talk on, I believe it was Coast to Coast. I reached yeah. out to you and asked you Jordan to be Knapp. a guest. I do owe George Knapp that for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago. I think yeah. back in 2012 or 13 well, was 20, when we first started talking. And you had written X Descending about the Paul Benowitz case. Uh, and this is a case of disinformation, of, of torture, basically, of a, you know, a brilliant man. And uh, for the person um, that is unaware of the Paul Benowitz case, I'd like for you to kind of present it in like a nutshell of like within 10 minutes, if you can, possibly. And uh, if do you, do you also, did you have something to finish up on your thoughts from right before we went into break? Uh, or were we basically done? Yeah. Not that it was important to, I'm sure we'll go off in all sorts of interesting tangents here in a little bit. So we'll just carry okay. on with what it is. Um, all right. And I, I do have to say there's a lot of interest in this case. There has been for a long time. And uh, I'll bring up a picture. I think it's really curious, uh, Christian, that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of pictures of Paul Benowitz. And there's not any really good picture that I was ever able to find. Here's a picture that you see out there a lot. That's from um, UFO it, magazine. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. And uh, why is that? Why aren't there more pictures of Paul Benowitz? Do you know? I don't know. The most recent one that, or not recent one, but another one that I had seen is the one that seems to be shown now. Um, Emily Louise that I put you in touch with the other day had a picture of him where he's got a beard. And huh? I don't know whether that was before or after the one that we're seeing here. But it's an interesting looking picture in its own right for the, the guy running his own scientific lab. But yeah, I'm, I, I have a feeling they're probably out there somewhere. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. Gabe Valdez or Greg Valdez may have some images left over because Paul had spent a good amount of time with Gabe. 
but I don't know why there aren't oh, as many out there as you would think, considering the interest that's been in his in his case. At least after it occurred, you had a good ten years up to the point that Bill Moore gave his you know his speech in Las Vegas. Um, but even then, if it wasn't for Paul Benowitz's case, we wouldn't be hearing from Doty, although he talks about everything else under the sun these days. But that's where he came from. People think about MJ-12, and if it wasn't for the Paul Benowitz case, we wouldn't have even had that out there, or the Project Aquarius, you know, or any of these sorts of things. Um, There's so many things that tie back into that particular case that in itself, to me, is one of the reasons I'm not sure why congressmen these days aren't shown information on that case. And let's get some of the Air Force people. Of course, this was when the Air Force was really involved. Nowadays, they seem to have sat back and let the Navy take all the hits. Yeah, that's but right. There are aspects of that case that are, you, you cannot explain them away. And the way things occurred and the consequences. You know, in this case, it's more like, you know, somebody, he called the Air Force to tell them what he'd seen, thinking he was doing the right thing. You know, and even in one of the, it may have been one of the videos that uh, Doty had given an interview in where he says, Paul was a patriot. He always hung his flag out. And I'm like, and this is the guy that you're saying you went after. You're saying he was a good American. And you and your, whoever was giving your orders back then at AFOSI, decided to go after and try to rub this guy into the ground. So anyway, if I can give a short version of of what occurred with Paul. Um, Yeah, why don't you? Yeah, sure. Okay, Paul was a gentleman that lived just to the east side and called the Four Hills area of Albuquerque, which if you've ever seen the map of the area, it's on a bit of a rise up there, which means from his roof, he had a clean view down towards London. You could see the Albuquerque airport and look pretty much straight across the fence line because there's not very far to the fence of Kirtland Air Force Base and the mountains, the three miles that are called the Manzano Mountains, where there were bunkers had been drilled in and supposedly nuclear materials had been stored in there back at that time it was considered one of the most secure places in the united states because it had a double perimeter electrified fence that went around the whole three mile long mountains and then patrolled by guards and whatever paul had gotten interested in ufos and apparently had been for quite some time you know he had already been in touch with the apro jim and coral lorenzen but Around 1979, my book focuses primarily on about a one-year period from middle of 1979 to the middle of 1980, because after that, my feeling was all bets are off, because they knew what was going on, and you don't have to know what kind of disinformation was out. But he had gotten interested in the reports of cattle mutilations and strange things going on in the upper, in the area around Dulcie. In fact, people who hear about Dulcie to this day may not make the connection that this all basically had its beginnings with the underground bases stories with Paul Benowitz. But to make a long story short, he got very interested because of something he caught on film and he'd been going back in the fourth to Dulcie. But one night he came back, it was best I could tell it was maybe around the middle of December. He had come back from being up there and his wife told him that she'd been waked up in the middle of like four o'clock in the morning with a dog barking from some loud noise over their home. And I guess it was his mindset at the time. He wondered, was there something else now that may have followed him back? And he didn't quite know what. The point was that made him get out on the roof of his house. Keep in mind, it's freezing. We're talking sometimes down in the 20 degree temperatures. 
but he's up on the roof of his house, which was a two-story house to begin with. When he gets up on the top, he's like on the third floor up there looking out where he's got a pretty much clear view straight across the plain above the fences out towards the Manzanos. And one of these nights while he's out there looking, he sees this strange glow way off in the distance, about a mile, two miles off towards the plains. And as he watches the strange glow, suddenly at one point, there was a bright flash, instant whoosh. And a few seconds later, boom, brilliant came on and objects shot straight up off the ground to maybe 300 feet and then took off south, a beeline around the south end of the mountains. Shocked the daylights out of him. But after that, he got a camera. By that time, I think he had a Hasselblad camera. The best I can tell is he also had another camera mounted on a telescope and another one that I think had a lens on it that gave him six degrees, something this way. But he had three different types of photography equipments out there, cameras, equipment out there. And as he stayed out there, the best I can tell, it may not have been every night in a row, but one night when he was out there, he wrote in some papers that I still have, actually not far from here, that his wife came out on the deck with him. And they were watching because he was watching these. By this time, he had seen these lights down there, the glow that he first identified. And they saw what appeared to be, I guess they speculated it must be the guard's truck driving down the side road by the perimeter fences. And she couldn't understand how can they not see these things. But shortly afterwards, he saw that flash that he had recognized the first time. And he told her, get ready and watch. And apparently she was right there with him. These things took off, shot down around the south end of the mountain. But he had not ever gotten out there early enough, apparently, to see them come in. But one night he describes he had gotten out there much earlier. And at a certain point, in this case, he only describes one. So I'm not sure if it was, there were four. Let me put it that way. I should have backed that up and said that. Four of these objects to begin with. Three smaller ones, one about twice the size of the other ones. And this time he only described one of them that came around the end of the mountain very fast. And from where he was and where he had presumed they were going down, it would have been about a mile from the south end of the mountain to zip around and come up to the area where he had seen them go down. And he said it didn't come in like a helicopter at all. It came in right over the spot, stopped, went straight down, lights out within five seconds. No hovering and finding where you're going to come down like a helicopter would have done. And that was the time when he presumes this is where they're coming in from. Somehow or other, they're coming in from the south edge of the mountain which later on you hear a lot of talk. I think Bruce McAbee even wrote about this idea of Coyote Canyon, which Coyote Canyon was actually on the other side of the Manzano Mountain Ridge. So you could not see in the Coyote Canyon from where Paul's house was. And just so anybody is not confused, the Starfire Optical Range, which was out the, also out there on the grounds of Kirtland, is about another two or three miles further south behind the mountaintop from where Paul was. So people I've heard, Greg Bishop for one, said originally that, well, some people thought it was may have been the lasers from the Starfire Optical Range, but they're on the other side of the mountain. You wouldn't have seen them for where Paul was seeing these things. But he got film footage and he got still shots. Where the still shots ever went, you know, at one point long after he had cut off communication with everybody, I wrote a letter to his wife and I said, all I can ask is if you've still got any of the material he had taken, please lock it away somewhere safe, just in case it ever comes up into value later on. But I was going to give a talk at a MUFON group in Dallas at that time, I guess I invited. And at the time, I'd been in communication with Paul. And he sent me 
a box about two or three inches thick, a FedEx box with mounted black boards with eight by 10 color photos mounted on it, including an original small Polaroid slide, you know, that used to slide out of the camera. That was one of the first pictures that he took. I don't know why he sent that to me. I was careful with him. But that was one of the first pictures he took up in Dulce that showed an object by a tree. And if you look closely at it, you can make out some kind of geometric shape to it. But that's what really kicked his interest into gear. And that's why he ended up down in Albuquerque on the roof. But these photos that he took show one or two of them show an object when it's on the ground, very dark. But you can see a lighted band of looks like rim lights in a circle around it. And then later on, when they took off, he's got images of them taking off with some kind of a strange, like static charge, discharge of some sort. But he outlined and wrote about all of this stuff in the papers he sent me. And he sent me those photos. And obviously, the crazy thing is that about that time is when John Lear had come into the picture. And I didn't want to give up those photos to anybody. But John Lear had ingratiated himself to Paul. And I wanted to send them back to Paul. You know, Paul kept saying, well, I'll just give them to John because John Lear wanted to take them. And I think it's subsequently to that is when John Lear, I think, is what part, in my opinion, is why Paul Benowitz just fell off and you know went off the deep end because he was so angry. The last time I talked to him yelling about John Lear, he felt betrayed for something. But the photos that I've got are clear enough. Now, I will say he took these photos off of one of the old eight millimeter you know, editor, little machines that used to be, we all used to have before computers came into play. And you can see them on the screen. And in some cases you can even see the reel to reel. So you know it's eight millimeter film because you can see the reel there while he's taking the photo of it. But because it was taken at night and of course the pictures weren't perfectly clear. So I had to go into Photoshop and take out the orange coloration of the background of the image and darken that. But when you do that, the actual brightness of the images of the objects themselves come out. And I'm just saying it's not anything special to do. Anybody could do it. And I did not, you have to know, I didn't add anything into those pictures. I didn't take anything out. You're just adjusting contrast and some of that so that you can bring out the brightness of the objects. Those objects, there are things that you can see in there. One of them, when they're on the ground, the small object seems to suddenly shoot a, you know you know what a solar flare looks like you can see in the glow around the top of this object and they look kind of like a derby hat it wasn't a perfectly round glow it was more of a flattened off across the bottom and a big glow across the top and very often when they're getting ready to move there's a much bluer tint towards one side than the other but in the one smaller object when it's taken off as the glow comes on you get rid of the orange glow and inside you can see these red tendrils that look like solar flares almost makes me wonder is this some kind of a magnetic field or something going on i'd be speculating to tell you that but those photos that paul got that's why he got in so much hot water and it's notable that the air force didn't go to him and try to study the photos they went after paul they did everything they could mm. do to defuse paul because he had credibility because not only was he a civilian but he owned thunder scientific lab that had contracts with some of the military you know, de agencies or departments at the time. So the guy was a very credible person as far as that goes. But that went on for 10 years. And my belief personally is they took his interest in Dulcie and shifted him back up there by planting ideas of underground bases and then flying him over there with a helicopter and looking at things that are on the ground that I 
probably believe were planted there so they could point to them and make him feel like, oh, there must be an underground base down there. And that's why so much of what people talk about Paul Benowitz is Krista Tilton's book and a lot of other stories that are written up have now gone to the idea of an underground base. But my opinion, it was the films that he got that if anybody saw them would have been irrefutable that he got something on film that was not as in fact, I've heard somebody you would all know say, oh, it was just helicopters made up to, you know, lights on helicopters. Not a chance in hell, you know, not a chance. But anyway, that's what led him to call down on the base himself. And he got in touch with Colonel Ernest Edwards. I think he was major sergeant at the time. And he wanted to talk to them about these things he had filmed. And Ernest Edwards was actually in charge of security inside the perimeter fence on the mountaintop. But since these things were landing outside the perimeter fence, Edwards didn't know what to do. So he made the call to the AFOSI officer, who was Richard Doty, and put him in touch with Richard Doty. And that's, to me, when the whole fix was in. Once they knew that he had what he had on film, what are you going to do? I guess they were going to do everything they could to demean his credibility and diminish him and fill him. Well, like even Bill Moore, I think, said, they stuffed him so full of disinformation that he'd practically choke on it. But he believed these guys. He trusted them, right? They were the military guys. He was a patriot. He trusted it. Why would they come after him and try to stick it to him? And I think, Sir, do you think he had some problems before that, though? I mean, there was some bizarre things that were happening. I, I know there was a disinformation case, probably. I, I, I don't know. I, I would like you, if you know about the Myrna Hansen uh, situation, if well, you could talk about no, that, because that... Some people yeah. believe that's a disinformation case. And uh, I think it I think it was. And in fact, I really tried to do a deeper dive into that in the book that I wrote, because I will say I didn't hear about Paul when it was first occurring in 1980. I don't know that many people did outside of Jim and Coral, Lorenzen at APRO, whoever else, you know, Paul might have been talking to directly, maybe Gabe Valdez or whomever. It was within a year or two after that, and I think Linda Howe had gotten into it, and then you had Bill Moore John coming into play. One of the important points to remember, though, is Bill Moore got into this very early, like in the fall of 1980. For some reason, he had gone to Tucson. Uh, I'll get back. I'll get to Myrna Hansen here in one second. Bill had supposedly pulled up roots and moved to Arizona, to Tucson, and had begun to talk to, I don't maybe it wasn't in Tucson, but he began to talk to Jim and Coral Lorenzo with APRO, and one of the points to remember is he had joined them and it became kind of their head of special investigations, something to that effect. Right at about the time that that was occurring in the spring of 1980, right after Paul Benowitz had gotten his films. And I think it's notice, notable that in all the documentation I've ever seen, Paul called APRO, excuse me, called the Air Force in January. He called it, talked to, to uh, Ernest Edwards and Doty in January, but you don't see any documentation about any of Doty talking to Paul until you suddenly get to around April and May when Leo Sprinkle shows up and all of a sudden Myrna Hansen comes into the picture. Right. Now, the story of how she even came into the picture is almost a lure back to the Dulce scenario. Now, you, as far as Paul having had maybe any emotional or psychological issues before that, in the times I talked to him, 
by that time, of course, he was full of interesting ideas about aliens and this and that. And alien pragmatism is a word he used to use. And I remember to this day wondering, where did that ever come up? However, I think the Myrna Hansen story, well, you know, I just, my point is also, she apparently was a woman who had a child. Her story was she was driving. Had a back, son. Yeah, had a son driving back across northern New Mexico. She apparently lived much farther to the to the eastern side of New Mexico. I don't remember the name of the town right now, but she is claimed. And apparently, when she got home to wherever she was going, this is a story that I don't have exact proof of facts on this. But the story I've understood was she apparently got concerned about what she claimed had occurred to her. And she called one of the police departments or some officer where she was. By that time, Gabe Valdez was already widely known as being the man in the area about cattle mutilations and about aliens, UFOs and whatnot. And he was over there on the western side. He, he was, was friends with Benowitz, correct? Oh, yeah. Gabe oh, yeah. There. Yeah. Because when Benowitz first heard about the cattle mutilation stuff, there was a conference that went on. I think it was the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Don may remember some of this that went on. It was that took place either in southern Colorado or northern Mexico, but it was the Dulce area. That's where Paul, because he was with APRO, had gone up there and been there. His name is on a list of people who had attended, but he met Gabe Valdez there. And when Paul drove back up, he rode around on a night ride with Gabe Valdez. And on that night ride, they apparently saw some very peculiar things which is why the next day or next morning before Paul left, he took a photo of the area where they had been driving. And that's the photo that shows a, like a tall pine tree and some unusual thing in the upper corner of it that I think when he got home and showed it, his wife may have pointed it out to him and that kind of lit the fire under him. That's why later on when Myrna Hansen apparently reported something to a police department, wherever she was located, they didn't know what to do with it, but they yeah, all it was Eagle in New Mexico. And it's the two large, she saw two large uh, crafts that look like Goodyear blimps. Uh, and they, I think they brought in Leo Sprinkle, correct, to, to do That's a hypnotic regression on her? My understanding is she called the, her police department. They only knew Gay Valdez was kind of into the whole cattle mutilation thing because I believe her sighting also seemed to see a craft lifting up a cow or, a, or somehow interacting with a cattle. They re referred her to Gay Valdez. Gay Valdez mentioned her to Paul, and my understanding is it was like in no time, maybe within a matter of weeks, a few weeks. Somehow, she ends up all the way down staying at Paul's house. Right. I don't know why, but a single mother to me, I have no indication that her son was with her. I always thought that's really unusual to think of a single mother just going down to some strange man's home and staying there for however long it was there that then Leo Sprinkle shows up. And Leo Sprinkle is doing the regressive hypnosis. I don't know what I think necessarily. Well, about the one thing that was reported by Dr. Sprinkle was that the first hypnotic regression, uh, Benowitz and Hansen insisted that they do it in a garage in, in a Lincoln Town car and that they put aluminum foil all over the, the, the windows. I believe that, yes, I think that did take place, as bizarre as it sounds. Now, I it, don't know if that was the first time or second time. I do know that's Paul the first time, that. sir. And the second time when Dr. Sprinkle went down, he met Benowitz. Benowitz was armed to the teeth because he that's says the what, aliens are coming for me. Well, that's so, what I that's what I've read, you know, and on, on all honesty, right. without being able to have Benowitz to go ask about 
or even Benowitz's family to know about. I will say the one time I finally went to Albuquerque and met Paul, yeah, he was very stressed out. Here's my question to you. You, you, we do, I do believe there was a disinformation campaign against Benowitz, and I think you're right on the right track. Only I'm wondering if they didn't start feeding him some kind of drugs I, because his, his bizarre behavior, because he actually turned on his wife, too. He, he said his wife was being controlled by aliens and stuff. And it sounds like he was having some kind of psychotic effects. And I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. Well, for, so what, for what it's worth, it. for what it's worth. Yeah. I, I had contact with Benowitz then prior to his death. And he was of the firm belief that the aliens, the quote unquote aliens, had injected him with drugs. Now, with that being said, Bill Moore, okay, on one of those brunches that we periodically had, I questioned him deeply about that. And he told me that he had gone over, he was periodically going over to Benowitz's house. And that's, of course, when he fed him those disinformation documents. Paul had firearms in all corners of his house, okay? And uh, more, now, I, I never knew whether I believed this or not, but he had a very interesting anecdote that he told me, that he was there one time when he saw a floating, I believe Moore said it was a blue ball, pass behind Paul Benowitz, okay? And he sat there and counted the number of cigarettes that Paul smoked in a 45-minute time period, 28 cigarettes. He would light one up, puff on it a little bit, put it out, immediately light another one up, puff on it a while, put it out, and I'm thinking to myself more, what kind of a son of a bitch could you be knowing that you were part of this process, driving this man crazy, and sit there and calmly count how many times he lit a cigarette in 45 minutes and then report back to Doty to let him, I guess, know how their operation was going on. One more thing that Moore told me that AFOSI had sent black bag people into his house periodically when Paul wasn't there and do things like rearrange his furniture to make him think that the aliens had been there. So, I mean, you know. No, I mean, I, I was about to say the exact same kind of thing that the reports that we've read of people going in there. And Doty, I think at one point, even suggested Paul had allowed, was letting, willing to let Doty go in there. I'm not sure if I'd buy that. I mean, what better way to say you, you didn't break in than to say the guy who can no longer vouch for you was allowing you to go in. But I remember Paul talking about those glowing balls and that if they touched your skin, they'd sting the crap out of you. And I remember one time when I was working on the book, I called and talked to Linda Howe because she'd been there early on, you know, was involved in kind of this stuff really before it became well known. And she said that at one point, 
she had been somewhere where Paul and his wife were there and like they had their sleeves rolled up and she saw these little marks, like little cut scrape marks all over their arms and asked what those were. And he said, that's where those little glowing balls, if they touch you, they'll burn those little marks on you. And I was like, what you just described, Bill Moore having claimed he saw and those kind of things. And Paul ultimately having suspicions that there was a house across the street that he'd see cars going in and out of. He didn't know. Of course, by this time, paranoia could be taken over. You don't know who to trust. But what could have caused uh, uh, the appearance of a glowing ball was really one of the reasons in my book I got really interested in Kirtland Air Force Base having being called the Directed Energy Directorate. Because, for example, people who have got cancer treatments, well, they don't want to hit you with a high beam, high strength beam. So they line two of them up so that the intersection point is where you're going to actually get the effect. And I began to wonder, could there have been some way, especially if black bag teams went in there and laid out his whole house, that you could have directed energy beams that would cross at a certain point and you'd suddenly have this glowing plasma. If you've ever been outside of a solar facility out in the out in the country where they have all the mirrors pointing towards the top of the receiver, you'll see a, a glowing ball of plasma almost because all those mirrors are focusing the sun's intensity on that one spot. That's conjecture, of course, on my part, but I did look into some of the things that were going on at Kirtland and a, a, a group called the Scorp Works, Scorpions. You know, and I, and I kind of struck me the idea that what do you say when a scorpion hits you? He stings you. And there was, I found some documentation on it about an energy rifle that had the logo of a scorpion on it that was being experimented with by these Scorpworks guys where they could hit you with a high intensity beam of, for what purpose, who knows? But it just seemed to me to be interestingly coincidental, if nothing else, that right across the fence from where Paul lives, you've got the directed energy directorate working on these beams that conceivably might hit people. And, you know, I just, it's. Sir, he, he must have had something very important because if I remember right, he was in constant contact with Gabe Valdez, who was a police officer, right? Quite a bit from my understanding. All right. And Gabe yeah. Valdez's son reports that they found all kinds of listening devices in, yes. in the in police Valdez's officer's place. home. Yeah. So obviously they must have been talking about something that was quite interesting to the military or something they wanted to keep a, keep them away from there. Because you don't go putting, you don't break into a cop's home and put listening yeah. devices in without something very, very, very important. Yeah, or perhaps kind of they're wanting to see what effect, you know, my, my thinking has been the best way to get Paul to sound crazy is to stuff him full of aliens are attacking from all over the place. And then there's underground bases at Dulce. And it's clear that they did fly up there with helicopters at times, even after the meeting that took place in November that reported the, the, the case where they had Paul down on the base. Ernest Edwards told me that right after that meeting, some people got in helicopters and headed up there towards Dulce. But if Paul was being fed information, especially like with Myrna Hansen, to reinforce his belief that, yes, there's an underground base up there at Dulce and she must have been close to it. You might want to monitor whatever he's saying and talking to Gabe Valdez and be able to see how effective it's going on. Or maybe you give information to Gabe Valdez as well. That makes him think Paul is onto something. You know, I don't know, but it's clear 
that there was some kind of a disinformation, mind management, mind manipulation going on with Paul that began because of the films that he took. In the last 20, 30, 40 years, if you called the Air Force and asked anything, they'd say, call MUFON. They would just refer you to something else. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Christian, um, am I recalling right that there was maybe an un unsubstantiated rumor that J. Allen Hynek visited him and gave him a computer with something on it that, that he thought he could communicate with aliens or something like that? Well, one of the things that actually, I think there were some photos that were taken or images that were taken that he shared with Gabe Valdez actually, were from an early computer system. And I believe it's in Greg Bishop's book that the story begins to first come out that apparently Paul either wanted a computer system or was in a position where some Heineck could give him one. But the story was that Heineck gave him a computer, but didn't tell him that it actually came from the Air Force. Now, what was on there? I don't know, but that seems to have been the computer that Paul would be using when he thought he was somehow able, and apparently by all accounts from what I understand, he was kind of an electrical genius being able to devise little contraptions of his own, but he managed to set up some kind of rudimentary communication thing that he felt was allowing him to communicate with whoever these aliens were that were out towards Kirtland or wherever else. And at times he would get images that almost looked like I mean, this was even before my computer time, I think. Some rudimentary, you know, pixelated images of pictures of different things that the aliens were supposedly sending to him. And I know my friend Tom Bland had seen some of those. He knew Gabe Valdez very well and had shown him some of the pictures that Paul apparently had printed out off of the computer. But the idea, and I don't know, that's always bothered me. Keep in mind, that's hearsay. Heineck's not around now for anybody to go ask him about it. But the idea that Heineck would knowingly give a computer to Paul, but not tell him that it came from the Air Force. And I, I don't even know necessarily what year we're talking about. Was this a lot well, of- Well, Heineck was I still think. associated with the Air Force in those days. According to uh, Moore, uh, I interviewed Moore in June of 1994. I interviewed him a number of times, but on that particular broadcast, he claimed that more that more claimed that Valet and Heineck were still both feeding intel back to the Air Force. In other words, they were spooks. And I said, "No, wait a minute, wait a minute." He said, "I can prove it." I said, "Well, you're making one heck of an, an allegation there, Bill." He said, well, I have the proof. I said, did you bring it? He said, no. I said, I need to see that proof. He said, I'll bring it to you in a week. Well, that was the last time I ever had any communication with Bill Moore. Something tells me in the last year or so, somebody published an account of that. I didn't realize that that was you that he had talked to. But yeah, that kind of thing is... You know, I don't even know what to think of Bill Moore. The only reason that I feel or strongly feel that Moore was not just a writer who somehow the Air Force decided to try to pull him in was the timing of when he became the APRO head of their science 
you know, investigations, whatever else. And that was almost in no time before the odd Craig Wetzel letter was sent to APRO. And supposedly Jim Lorenzen hands it to Bill Moore to investigate, and he says he never did. But that's the letter that you first see Doty's name mentioned. Don't but forget, then, 79 was when Moore's book came out on Roswell. Yeah, made him a big, you know, big character, so to speak, a big popular. And that's allegedly, according to what he later told me, is when the government, AI, FOSI, contacted him. And his thought, and he told me this distinctly, he said, look, he said, I was bound and determined to get into the middle of the beehive. I wanted to know, and, and it was obvious to me. I mean, hell, in my career, I've interviewed, I couldn't tell you how many thousands of people, and I can generally read somebody pretty well. And more, his arrogance came out. He was convinced he was smarter than those guys. And he wasn't bending to their will. They were bending to his. This was his attitude. Yeah, and well, look what I'm, it got him. Surprising. The interesting thing, though, is, see, I'd never heard him stating that they had contacted him in 1979. I wouldn't necessarily... Well, right after the book came out, it could have been 80, Christian. Yeah, because his story that I heard was that it was after he had... He was on a book tour, I think, and he was going across country, and he began to get calls at the radio stations by people saying, we think you're the guy, the only guy who we've heard who knows what he's talking about. And it was on one of his return drives in Albuquerque, where he supposedly got a call contact to meet somebody at one of the restaurants, and somebody tapped on his window. He supposedly was sitting out waiting to see who walks into the restaurant, and a guy with a red carnation or something to this effect taps on his window and that's when he went and met this person who he talked to first and then within a couple of weeks he's introduced to Richard Doty and I'm like that's interesting that he's getting these calls according to what he says but it sounds like a convenient cover story because if he was if he was working with APRO and they gave him that Craig Wetzel letter that I talked to Craig Wetzel. Something occurred, but not everything that was in there. The Craig Wetzel letter was the first one that mentions Doty, spelled D-O-D-Y. But they gave that letter to Bill Moore, and Bill Moore says he never checked on it. But then suddenly he's on a book tour, and on one of his return trips, he meets this guy who then puts him in touch with Doty, the very same person who was mentioned in the paper, but he's supposed to be their head, science, head investigator guy, and he never checked on it. But Doty gets in, and that's... The best I knew is that's when all of this started. Mr. Lindbergh. Later. Yes, sir. The question I have for you, what was it that Benowitz filmed? What what base was it that he filmed a, a UFO for? He, he filmed something Kirt, over. Kirt, Kirtland Air Force Base, right there in Albuquerque. Well, was there was that a weapons storage facility? Because I believe somewhere is that he filmed something over a weapons storage facility. Well... I don't know that he filmed anything directly over the weapons storage facility. If you look at Google Maps, you'll see the relationship between Kirtland and Kirtland Air Force Base and the three miles of what well, are Kirtland, called the Kirtland is supposed to have a weapons storage facility, correct? Well, 
that's what's if that's if what right. I'm thinking is what you're referring to in the mountains, the three mile, excuse me, the Manzano mountain range, which originally had the double perimeter electrified fence around it, has had tunnels drilled into it with big bunkers out front that supposedly had nuclear materials and whatnot in there. That double perimeter fence, though, also has a road where the guards would drive along the road they would use if you were going to one of the bunkers and that sort of thing. The objects that Paul filmed, though, were just on the grounds outside the fence. Now, that's still considered, and it's interesting to me because we talk about Kirtland Air Force Base, but a lot of that area, especially even on the west, excuse me, the east side of the mountains, where a lot of testing was done in what's called Coyote Canyon that I think Bruce Maccabee wrote about, that was Department of Energy land. So Kirtland Air Force Base had their own little area, I suppose. Then you had the Manzano Mountains, which was patrolled by the guards with the nuclear materials in them. But the Manzano Mountains on the east, the west side of the Manzano Mountains towards the Kirtland Air Force Base, towards the Albuquerque side, that's where the objects were coming down. That's clearly visible from Paul's roof. If you look at the sketches and, I mean, it's like due south, two miles from the third floor. He had a perfect view of that. The reason I'm a- asking this question is, is because why would two get two guys with the U.S. government, Moore and, and uh, Doty, spend their time trying to make this guy nuts? For you know, there's what what's the intent? Where's the the intent to make this guy nuts? Why him? And and my my idea is, or I'm thinking, you know, I'm putting on my investigator's hat. Well, he filmed something that he shouldn't have filmed. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt about it. And in fact, and, and, I, and they said, we got to stop this right now, right at this minute. Now, right. for what for whatever it's worth, Chris. According to Moore, this was an NSA project. Well, I had to be some, I mean, you know, they, they to go after this guy the way they did to put up a hoax with Myrna Hansen because they believe that to bug people's houses the way they did to, to drive this man into a mental institution. He was hospitalized. I mean, uh, there was a point where they had, he, he had a standoff with the police because he was putting sandbags around his house. He was getting ready to war with the aliens. And so to go to all this extreme, there is something they were trying to protect. Yeah. My do, my do you also agree my with that, sir? No, I agree. Oh yeah. I agree a hundred percent. My understanding is that it was somewhere around Myrna Hansen or a little bit after that, that Paul began to get a little disillusioned with the response he'd been getting from the Air Force. And he began to write, kind of go off the reservation, writing his senators and whomever else. And it seems to me that was at the point at which somebody decided we need to nip this guy in the bud. And I believe part of the intent was to simply stuff him with so much talk, give him so much information. He would believe that they're aliens, give him a computer, have the aliens communicate with him, have the aliens talking about, you know, zapping people, whatever else. You mentioned the uh, the Manzano mountain area. There is a picture, well-known picture that shows something. I don't know what it is, but Paul also had showed that to me. And in the foreground, you'll see a guy standing by, looks like a Jeep. My understanding is that was when Paul was with Ernest Edwards and they had driven around the south end of the mountains, Manzano's, and gone up towards Coyote Canyon. Coyote Canyon was the story that was written up later in the papers that came out through AFOSI that a security guard had approached 
one of the, what they call the last bunker on the left. And if you look at Coyote Canyon, it stretches back that way. And there was a facility back there. And one night, a security guard had approached that and saw a disc-shaped object, either above it or right by it. And as he got close, the thing took off. That was written up in the documents that were released by AFOSI that I think were a red herring. I don't know that I think that ever occurred. I think that was just something to implicate UFOs were being seen around there. They made a vague reference to Paul Benowitz as having seen, you know, someone involved in things in the area. They never said Paul had contacted us in June. But there was a document that was put out by Ernest Edwards. He had come back to the base when a couple of guys had come to visit from Sandia Security at the behest of Senator, I don't remember the name off the top of my head right now. These two guys had come to Ernest Edwards to talk to him about Paul Benowitz. And he outlined a number of things, but he stated at the beginning of that conversation, first contact with Paul Benowitz, January of 1980, not six, eight months later, like you would be led to believe if you looked at the AFOSI documents that had come out. And then in November, they bring him on base to have this big, I don't know, dog and pony show, I suppose, in which then they ushered Paul out the door thinking he was crazy. And I happen, I happen to believe that probably by that time, he was already so full of conviction that aliens are running around. They've abducted Myrna Hansen. They've got an underground base up at Dulce. And honestly, when I first, when I first talked to Paul, I called him on the phone and he was talking this kind of, I think it was 1982 or three at the time, but he was already talking about all this kind of alien stuff. And honestly, I was like, Hmm. It wasn't until he said that he had called him about the films. And I said, wait, Paul, what films are you talking about? Oh, the films I got from my roof. Whoa. And all the time where Peter Gersten, Linda Howe, Bill, all these people had already been making subtle comments coming out at the time. I had never heard any mention that he had actually gotten films off of his roof. When I saw those films, and then I finally looked at the time frame of him contacting the Air Force within a matter of weeks, because he said he still had film from Dulce on it, and he had to go get it developed. Then things began to fall into place that he contacted him. They put him in touch with, with Doty. Doty probably went and saw what Paul had and, and talked to Edwards. And they, by that time, Edwards had already gotten to know Paul as well, and been to visit his house. They probably knew there's, we need to head this off. You know, we need to do something to make this whole thing look discreditable before it ever gets out of hand. And unfortunately, Paul had, it's one of the things about the APRO files that I guess <laughs> are finally in Albuquerque that I'd like to take a look at to see what Paul had been writing to APRO during this time that I'm sure they didn't know what to do with him either. But it could simply be like we have these days, people who really have been looking hard to find something and when finally they think they've got it, then all these other ideas begin to come into play. And it's easy for somebody to kind of go off the road, you know, when they're fed, especially like was being done with AFOSI, when they're fed all this information to make them believe that they're on the right track. You know, and like they say, people like that, it's going to be what do hard. You think, yeah. Go what do you think the, the main purpose? Do you think that he was filming experimental craft or something like that, where why would they try to make him go crazy and distract him? I think at this time, it was probably because once you have a guy talking about, well, let me back up for just a second. If you look at Paul Benowitz, the films that he got, at least the photos he sent to me, 
there are no distinguishing characteristics of mountainside or buildings or anything. I think if he had just gone and said, hey, I got these films, they could have written them off. But he wasn't the only one who saw the object. His wife saw them. And he didn't get more. Apparently, he had still shots with a telephoto lens and all sorts of things. I'd love to have seen what those looked like. But apparently, he was also a credible enough guy at the time. He owned Thunder Scientific, had government contracts. He was doing well enough. You know, the Four Hills area is a ritzy part of Albuquerque for sure. That I think he would have been taken seriously enough if he had gotten traction. And I think at that point, the easiest thing to do would be to just defuse the guy any way, shape, or form you could, fill him with information, put out documents that the public can run with, plant MJ-12 or Aquarius or whatever else, and I'll be one of those guys that I'll tell you. Filing FOI requests for Aquarius, you can wait a year, two years, three years. You know, that's a stall that if you get off on that track. But I think that was one of the reasons, too, like as like as him as much as I did, if he was predisposed to believe that he was right, you know, I sometimes go back. If you ever watched, uh, oh, what was the 1920s movie that had Robert Redford and you know, these guys in it at the time, where the mafia 20s. guy, and what was the you said 1920s? Had, yeah, it was an old movie that was about the 1920s. Oh, of the 1920s, I got it. I got it. But the point at the point yeah. at the end was, I think Robert Shaw played the head gangster guy. Oh, the sting, the sting, the whole thing was a setup, and Robert yeah. Shaw was so sure he could not be fooled that he'd buy, they knew he'd buy it. They just set it up enough to be sure that he had no doubt that there was no way he could get played. So when he thought they had killed each other and the cops were showing up, he left and they were all off the hook. Because, and I feel like there are people that are that way. They are so certain that they could not be played. And I hate to say this, but I have a feeling there are a lot of PhDs out there that are so sure they're educated, they've got a PhD, they would not be, they could not be played. But I bet you put a good card shark in front of them and it'll look like magic to them. But I have a feeling that's maybe in Paul's case, he was so certain that he could analyze it and figure it out. And his equipment that he built would not lie to him. But you're up against people who got the time and the money and the knowledge and the more money than he had who know how to play this. And if there was anything with AFOSI or intelligence agencies involved, psychologically, I have a feeling you could probably feed any of us enough stuff what? that we might not be sure. Let me ask you a question, Mr. Lambright. Did Benowitz uh, have any children? Yes. They did? Yes. Have you ever been in contact with those children? Two, maybe three sons. You've been in contact with the children, sir? I met one of them, and it was only because a few years ago I drove to Santa Fe and was actually going to give at a conference. I'm just curious as to why the children that – now that Doty and Moore, I mean, all this information comes out that they actually had a campaign against them to, to probably drive them nuts. Why they haven't done a civil suit? Uh, there's been other civil suits. If they suits. even pay attention, if they pay attention. My understanding is one of his sons was with him on one of his trips up to Dulce. And he, he wrote in the papers at one point, he laughed because his son was muttering about trying to get the camera set so they could take a picture of something that they had seen. I met one of the sons because I just I just felt I should do it. I, I did try to contact Paul numerous times after he discounted, disconnected with everyone. And I wrote letters to him and then I wrote the one to his wife. But I stopped by Thunder Scientific just because I don't know what better way to say it than to pay my respects. I went in and talked to his son and I just 
I did the best I could. And it was only five minutes sure. or less just standing there quietly trying to tell him that I had been in contact with his father and I had a lot of respect for him and I hated what had happened to him and, you know, that sort of thing. And he was very polite. There was no contention or anything about it. I just think but that the government, for what they did, owes, owes one, some kind of acknowledgement what they did to him, and two, maybe a compensation to the family for what they did to this poor man. Maybe. And I'll just give you my speculation on maybe some of that. If at some point things had gone south, and you know, even Doty has talked about he went to talk to Paul when he was in the hospital, you know, and tried to tell him what he was doing, which I don't know whether I believe that anyway. But if at some point somebody went to his family and said, okay, look, this is what happened, but this was so classified that we could not do any other way. However, we're going to try to make some amends. We're going to assure, and I, this is total speculation, but I've thought about it. We're going to assure that Paul and his family will be taken care of. You each that are running now, the sons are running Thunder Scientific. We will make sure you have contracts out the wazoo. Would that have been enough under the circumstances? I mean, if you sue them and they back off with all the stuff they've got and paint a worse picture of your dad being a crazy, nobody wins anything. But would that or could that potentially be enough that for generations to come, his sons, their children, the mother, would that have been enough for the sons to just, and I don't know, maybe they did find some kind of work out an arrangement that they, but you're right. I don't know. I would hope my sons would sue the hell out of them. You know, these days, why isn't something like this brought up to our congressman, Tim Burchette? Well, Say, if you don't want to get it from the Air Force, you can at least bring in Doty. You can bring in everybody else. Bring Sir, in you had David Grush say people have been murdered over this thing, and nobody, everybody yeah. looked like a deer in headlights. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. No, and, and even Don, last week I heard you talking about Lee Graham being threatened with losing his job over that sort of thing. Yeah. And my feeling, my feeling is if they would go after Lee Graham, why is nobody going after – Grush or how well, they are, they have, they well, have according to him, but he's still out there talking. And my, I don't know, I just my well, biggest they, concern they is they released Grush, Christian, Grush. they released his private medical records. I do, I recall hearing about that. Yeah, that's and, a shame to do as well. Bringing up the fact that he was suffering from PTSD. I mean, Jesus, the guy was a, was a veteran in Afghanistan. All right. I, I mean, I've read about Grush. I have no doubt about him. It's the same way, if I can mention, if we can not to get off the subject of Benowitz as well, but the whole thing with Fravor and these pilots. I'm convinced of what Fravor has said and what Dietrich and the others have said as far as what they saw, not that I know what they saw. However, I have a problem with the idea that they did not get an actual film of what Fravor saw, his encounter, because it's written in documentation that's attributed to Alex Dietrich. It was published first on the To The Stars website, although the names were blotted out. Then it came out again later. It's been out publicly now. I got a copy of it myself. That's an interview that was done with Dietrich at a hotel somewhere in Washington, and it names several people, two government, two industry, something like this, people that were there. 
And in that, her testimony right there, she stipulates that Fravor had the videotape from his gun camera. That Fravor, you know, this is when he, she says, when nobody came to investigate, Fravor got aggravated and slammed and locked the door on their, their little room there and made a copy of the tape from his gun camera, not the helmet cam. Many times I've heard people ask Fravor, did you get any video? And he says, no, we didn't turn on the helmet cam because, it, you know, you go kind of dizzy from the way your head's shaking around. But that's not what Dietrich. Now, I actually have tried to reach out to Alex Dietrich. The only way I could, I think, was through a LinkedIn address. No response whatsoever. I wanted to find out. All of her, I've got all of her information. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there's, there's the point. I would like to just know this document that was published first on the To The Stars website and has now come out with all the names, phone numbers, the whole nine yards. Who was in that meeting when they were interviewing Dietrich? And if she made it clear that Fravor had the tape from his gun camera, she's not talking about the, the guys that went out three hours later, you know, the Tic Tac video. Go ahead, Martin. What do you got? Oh, no, we have three minutes. Just letting you know, we have three minutes. Anyway, so but we're pretty the, much, kind of questions you know, we kind of, yeah, made a little bit of a jag uh, from Paul Benowitz. But um, if we can just jump back real quickly in this one question is, do we actually know what actually happened to him? Did he pass away in an institution? Do we know or anything like that? I, I believe he was in hospice care. I mean, I'd heard somebody say that they thought he killed himself. Not to my knowledge. My understanding, because I've heard some things said about him showing some respect for the nurse that was looking after him in hospice, something to that effect. But my thinking at this point is I believe he finally passed away. Maybe all the cigarettes had something to do with it as well. I don't know that for certain you know i don't want to pry into that kind of thing but i would say if his if his sons or family are ever watching any of this there are a lot of questions that i would like to ask them directly especially what became of the films that he actually took did they have ask is there a shoebox in the attic somewhere i wouldn't be surprised though if like Dodie said they went in there with black bag treatment if a lot of that stuff vanished. Oh, you know, right. I, know had, I know he had some that he sent me the pictures of. And they were in that reel-to-reel. But I think those would be something really worth seeing if they were out there. Well, I wish we had another hour because I would like to uh, take the opportunity in the last minute or so to say John Lear had a hell of a lot to do with this story. And Lear, uh, as a matter of fact, that's when I met Lear in 88, 89, <clears throat> and it was because of Paul Benowitz, but that's a story for another time. My story with Lear, which you can probably have heard before, is when he admitted to me, bold-faced standing in his house, that he had helped fabricate that O.H. Krill memo that was going around and people were swearing by it. Yeah. And I, yeah. I was stunned. You can cut us off when we're ready. He, I stepped back and I right. told him flat out, John, how can I even associate with you now? And I have told that whenever I, I could. You know, yeah, uh, I asked him point blank about that, and he absolutely admitted it uh, when yeah. I had him on my show. I, thank you all, uh, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I thought it was a very good night this nice evening. Nice and we'll be you. back. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks again, thank Martin. You. Have a great night, guys. Bye-bye.